Um, my name is Jordan Peterson, if I haven't met you. I'm one of the pastors at the Point Community Church. Um, I should say, I'm going to zoom in on um, verses 14 to 17 in that chapter. Um, because as I was reading that passage, I thought, I don't really get that. And when you think that, it's good to uh, preach on it so that you do learn how to what's going on. Um, if you guys uh, know me, and some of you do, some of you do, you know that I'm a very practical kind of person. I'm kind of get down to business, get stuff done sort of person. I love things like IKEA and tinkering away on bikes and things like that. I like IKEA because it comes with an instruction manual and everything is just flat packed and you just follow the things and boom, it's done. Um, wouldn't it be handy if relationships came with a set of instructions? Husbands, imagine if your wife came with an instruction manual. Step one, make breakfast for her every morning. Is that right, ladies? Step two, take her on date night once a week. Step three, pretend to be interested about the boring women's stuff that she likes to talk about at regular intervals. Is that right? <laughs> Just alienated all the women in the room. Wouldn't it make life so much easier to have a bunch of rules like that to follow in a relationship? Um, rules are really helpful things, but there's something problematic, isn't there, about reducing your relationship with someone to a bunch of do's and don'ts. So here's the question that I want to tackle tonight. Can doing things bring us closer to God? Can doing things bring us closer to God? And we're going to zoom in on verse 14 to 17 to answer that. Um, let me pray and then we'll have a look at the passage. Uh, Father, I ask that you'd speak clearly through me tonight and you would encourage our hearts by the, the newness that Jesus brings um, and that we would apply the, the things that we learn tonight to our lives. Amen. So you've got John's disciples um, and they come and ask Jesus a question. Um, they say, how come we and the Pharisees fast? This is in verse 14. But your disciples and you don't fast. See, the Pharisees believed that fasting was a really important thing to do if you wanted to grow closer to God. We'll just read the verse again. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? The interesting thing is, it's only commanded once in the whole Old Testament for God's people Israel to fast. Um, there was one day where they were commanded to fast. It's called the Day of Atonement. This is in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Um, and the reason that they were commanded to fast on that day was because it was a day of ritual cleansing of sins. It was like this sort of solemn um, remembrance kind of uh, festival that, that was going on. And so God commanded his people to fast as an act of worship on that day. But it doesn't say anywhere else in the scriptures that God's people had to fast any more than that one day of the year. The problem is the Pharisees, as they do, like rules. And so what they did was they took that commandment to fast and they went, oh, God must really like fasting. Well, we're going to be extra holy and we're going to fast twice a week, every week for the whole year. So two, day, two days out of every seven days, Pharisees would fast. I reckon, this is my theory, that's why the Pharisees are so cranky all the way through the gospel. They're hangry. They're super hangry, hungry and angry. You get, I get hangry. Um, 
And unfortunately, John the Baptist's disciples have caught on to this weird sort of asceticism, this weird tradition. Now, it's not that fasting is wrong. Uh, fasting is actually a good thing to do every now and again. Even in the New Testament, there are examples of Christians that fast. If you've never tried it, give it a go, just from sun up to sundown. Um, it's a useful thing to do because uh, it acts as a constant physical reminder of your need for God. It's very hard to ignore low-level constant hunger. I've had low-level constant back pain now for about six months, um, and it's pretty hard to ignore. But the good thing about that is uh, I'm constantly reminded of my need to be doing the exercises the physio is giving me, because otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. Fasting is a constant reminder of your need for God, of your need to be praying throughout the day. And that's why fasting and praying often go together uh, in the Bible. Three reasons that people would fast in the Bible. One is they were really sad, either because someone they loved had died or they were going through some sort of personal tragedy. Secondly, they were sorry for their sin and it was an expression of their repentance. Or thirdly, there was a really big decision that needed to be made and they wanted to spend time in constant prayer and so they would fast. So fasting is a good thing. The problem is when you take a good thing and you make a man-made rule out of it, and a tradition out of it, and then you expect other people to keep your rules. You ever had that experience when you were growing up of going to that one kid's house and you'd be playing some kind of game like tip or backyard cricket or whatever, but they just kept coming up with all these rules as the game went on. Oh, no, no, that doesn't count because at my house if it bounces off the post, we just, we just say that doesn't count. Oh, no, no, you can't win off a foul. That's, that's a rule that's at my house. Some of you are like, oh no, adults like that. Board game night or playing cards, there's always some rule that they forgot to mention. It's really annoying, isn't it? That's exactly what John's disciples are throwing at Jesus and his disciples. You guys aren't fasting as much as we are. Where does it say in the Bible that we need to fast as much as you do? Now, it's easy to nod your head and go, oh yeah, those silly, silly Pharisees silly John's disciples, but the thing is, um, we can be guilty of the same kind of behaviour. In fact, I'm terrible with this. I'm like, I love rules. There's an inner Pharisee inside me. I love things like Bible reading plans, and I get on uh, a bandwagon of my particular favourite translation, or my favourite preacher, I'm like, everybody should be listening to this guy. Everybody should be using this, this plan. I've actually been in a Bible study before where two of the guys there were, asked, were arguing that the rest of us should be fasting just as much as they should because they've been doing it and, oh, it's so helpful for their prayer life. We've got to check ourselves, don't we? Just because we've found something helpful doesn't give us the right to make a rule out of it and demand other people keep our rule. What matters is not how awesome our rules are but that we grow in our ability to discern what is an appropriate thing to do when. See, Jesus' response to John's disciples isn't, oh, you guys are taking fasting way too seriously. He doesn't say that. His response essentially is, you guys are doing something that's inappropriate for the time you're living. Look at verse 15. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? 
The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Now his point is, why would my disciples fast? Why would they be sad when I'm with them? Now, in one sense, that's quite a straightforward thing to say, but in another, that is an astounding thing to say. Because follow the logic here with me of what Jesus is saying. The reason people usually fast, okay, is because they're longing to be with God. They have a sense of God's presence in their lives. And Jesus here says, my disciples don't need to be sad. They don't need to fast. I'm right here. You see what the implication is? Fasting doesn't bring you closer to God, Jesus is saying. Knowing me brings you closer to God. Because I am God. He is the Son of God. As Hebrews chapter 1, the first couple of verses say, Jesus is the exact representation of his Father. Flick over with me to, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and look at verse 8. John chapter 14, look at verse 8. John 14, verse 8. Philip, this is one of Jesus' disciples, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can't have a relationship with God apart from knowing believing the promises of and living under the authority of Jesus Christ. You can't. Look at verse 6 in John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the basic problem John the Baptist's disciples have in Matthew 9 is they're trying to relate to God based upon what they do rather than who they know. And the only person really worth knowing, if you want a relationship with God, if you want to be close to him, is Jesus. Is that making sense? Follow the logic? See a couple of nods, it's encouraging. Um, it does raise an interesting question though, doesn't it? If the only right way to relate to God is by trusting Jesus, then what was the point of the Old Testament? Like why have three quarters of this book with no Jesus and all these laws and old ways of doing things and go through all of Israel's broken history such a long time, like thousands of years we're talking, before we finally get to Jesus and he makes everything right again. And the answer is this. We wouldn't understand how deep our need for Jesus is without the Old Testament. We wouldn't. If it wasn't for God making promises to Abraham if it wasn't for God giving the law to Israel and then their long history of failure again and again and again being recorded for us, we wouldn't understand how depraved sin is and how deep our need for a Saviour is. Nor would we understand that he had been promised for millennia. See, Jesus doesn't appear in a vacuum like there's a guy that turns up and says, I'm going to start a new religion. No, no. The Old Testament promises his coming. For thousands of years. See, the Old Testament is like the theme music 
that introduces a movie. Have we got that song ready, Tim? Have a listen to this song for a sec and see if you can work out what kind of images and people it throws into your mind. Ready? Go. Got it? No, no. Okay, before I go any further, does anyone not know what that song's from? Superman. Okay, you guys need to educate him, but the rest of you know it's from Star Wars, right? And you know it's from Star Wars, why? Because you've seen the movie. Otherwise, just an exciting piece of music. The Old Testament is like the opening credits and the, the music of the movie. It signals, oh, something's coming. Something's going to happen if you keep watching. And for those of you that have seen the movie, you know what's coming. Now, you don't want to abolish the opening credits and the music. That's like the bit where you go, whoa, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, but at the same time, once you get to Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and all those people, you would be pretty weird to go, I don't really want to know the story. I just want to go back. Can we just listen to that song on repeat just for the next two hours? That's really what I want. People who claim to be Christians and are trying to live under the Old Testament law are like people who claim to be Star Wars fans but haven't actually watched the movies. They just like the opening credits and, and that music. But you won't get Star Wars until you get the full story, until you watch what happens. And the same is the true of the Bible. If you don't understand the, the flow of old to new, if you don't understand that Jesus is the climax, that he's the one through whom everything comes together, and you go back and you try and live under the Old Testament law, you're ignoring the change that Jesus has brought. Because the Bible story is not just the Bible story, it's actually your story. This happens in the same universe. It's the story of humanity and our need for God. It's the story of every human being's need. The bottom line is this, trying to win God's approval by our performance is the old way. Faith in Christ is the new way. And this new way actually does make the old way where you try and do all the good stuff to, to be approved by God, it makes that way obsolete. It makes the Old Testament law obsolete. Now we don't want to abolish the Old Testament law, we still want to read it and study it and learn it. Because otherwise we won't really understand our need for Jesus. We, we won't understand God's holiness and sin. But we don't live under the same paradigm that Israel did in the Old Testament. It's inappropriate for the time we're living in. Jesus has died for our sins, he's risen from the dead, and he has fulfilled the law on our behalf so that we don't have to. In fact, to go back to living that way, it actually ruins Christianity. It's a false gospel to say, to be a Christian, you don't just have to believe in Jesus, you have to do all these other things that are written in the law too. Look at um, Jesus' point in verse 16 to 17 of Matthew 9. And you'll see, see this come out. Oh, I should have got a small Bible, hey? Study Bible, good for study, not good for preaching. Uh, look at verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. 
Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Um, I'm not very good at sewing. I've had a, a go once or twice. I had this hole in my jeans once and I thought if I get a bit of tea towel, like a fresh new tea towel and just cut a little circle out and put it over the hole, it'll be sweet. But the problem was that the jeans were really baggy and the tea towel was really tight. And so after a while, the patch fall loose and I just had this flappy piece of cloth on my knee. It wasn't uh, really that effective. Um, Jesus is using a parable about, you know, unshrunk cloth and shrunk cloth to illustrate the two don't go together. The old and the new don't work together. John, John's disciples, you guys are approaching your relationship to God in a way that's just not going to work. Doing stuff to earn God's favour is the old way, the way of trying to keep the law. And the Old Testament shows you that Israel fails over and over and over again. The new way is to put your faith in me, Jesus. Those two ways aren't compatible. Now, look, if you've grown up Jewish, and I don't suspect that anybody has, but if you've grown up Jewish, and then you do become a Christian, um, it's okay to keep doing Old Testament law-y kind of stuff, as long as you're doing it because it's just the cultural habit that you're in, not because you think that it's uh, making you right with God. Because you can't put the new way of relating to God through Christ with the old way of relating to God through law uh, My son, Will, he's five, his first ever school report came home the other day. And it was a very good report, I'll have you know. Uh, but even if it was terrible, it wouldn't really change my opinion on him. We'd probably have a little talk if there was lots of things about his bad behaviour in there. Uh, but his will is my son. And I love my son. I choose to love him, not based on how well he does at school. Because I choose to love my son, because he's my son. It reminds me of a story I was talking to um, a person many of you will know. Let's just call this person James, for the sake of argument. I was talking to James um, about a week or two ago, and, and James said during his teenage years, he was a bit off the rails. Like some of you are going, who's that person? Um, anyway, one day, James, teenage James, got caught by security at a shopping mall doing something stupid. And it was a serious kind of stupid. They called the cops in and sat him down in the back room. And the cops called his, his dad to come in. And uh, his dad came in and they started talking about what are the consequences going to be. Um, when James's dad was there, one of the cops just casually said to James's dad in front of James, mate, your son's an embarrassment. And you know what James's dad said to that policeman? Don't you dare say that about my son. Regardless of what he's done today, I love him and I'm proud of him. And then he grabbed James's arm and he stormed out of that room. <laughs> and then he got a big talking to by his dad for the next hour. But James says to me that that moment was one of the most important moments of his life. Because he, he suddenly realised, no matter what a ridiculous um, excuse of a son he'd been, no matter how bad the stuff that he did was, his dad loved him. And his dad had his back and was going to stick up for him, 
regardless of how stupid his behaviour. Our Father in Heaven doesn't love you because of your good performance. Understand that? He loves you in spite of your poor performance. Now, there would be some big questions, wouldn't there, if James just kept going back and doing the same thing he had done before every single weekend. You'd wonder how much does he really understand what his dad has done for him. Thankfully, he didn't. And we need to understand God is not disappointed with us. If we trust in Jesus, everything has been paid on the cross. Our poor performance, our shame, our sin, all put on Jesus. And equally amazing, all of Jesus' own righteousness is counted as ours. See, we can't go on living in unrepentant sin and call ourselves Christians. We can't say, yeah, 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 God loves me, I'm just going to keep living my own way and ignore Jesus' way. No, the Bible tells us if that's the case, you probably haven't understood the gospel. We need to be radical about cutting sin out of our life. But our citizenship in heaven doesn't depend on how good we are. And I don't know what you guys have done. Like, I'm a, I'm a ring-in. I'm from up the road. I don't come here every week. Um, but I suspect in a room this big, some of you have some things in your past that you're not proud of, to say the least. Maybe um, particularly ashamed. You need to know, if you've given that to God, He's not holding that over you. He's not holding that against you. He's not keeping score. In Christ... You are his son. You are his daughter. You are one of the children that he paid for with the blood of his own perfect son. And doing religious things bring us closer to God, not unless we know Jesus. There are things that are helpful. Fasting is helpful. Give it a crack sometime. Read your Bible, come to church, join a Bible study group. As long as you're not doing those things because... You're trying to impress yourself or others or God by doing it. We already have everything we need in Christ. And when you get what I'm saying today, it doesn't lead you to complacency in your Christian life. It actually makes you hungry for more. As a Christian poem once put it, How good the taste of pure grace to those weighed down with shame. How wonderful forgiveness is when given in Jesus' name. I tasted from the living water, it refreshed my weary soul, and ever since I've wanted more, I'll take it hot or cold. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you that uh, your love for us doesn't depend on our performance. We would be doomed if that was the case. Help us to trust that Jesus' death was enough for us, and to embrace the freedom that we have in Christ, to um, begin living the way that you would have us live. Amen. Gracias.